Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll, we will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Advances in the Treatment of Gastric Cancer. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it's because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today, we have over 411 participants on the call today. So there are a lot of you on the call today, and although you can't see each other, you're from all over the United States, from both urban and rural and suburban communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, China, India, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So a bit of a global call as well, and we are delighted to have all of you on the call today. Today's program is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I want to thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on the call today, actually the best speakers, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson is going to be addressing an overview of gastric cancer, diagnosis and staging, and standard of care, including chemotherapy and the role of targeted treatment. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to join you all today. When we talk about stomach cancer uh, or gastric cancer, we actually uh, include three sites uh, of disease the lower esophagus, what's known as the gastroesophageal junction, and the stomach. In Western countries, uh, including the USA, the most common site where we see uh, cancer involves the gastroesophageal junction. And that area can include the lower part of the esophagus as well as the first part of the stomach. Since World War II, there's been decreased incidence of true stomach cancer in the U.S. However, what we have seen is an increased incidence of cancer involving the gastroesophageal junction. The highest incidence of gastric cancer is actually in China and Japan and other Asian countries, as well as in Eastern Europe, Chile, Peru, and Brazil as uh, notable examples. It is the fifth most common cancer worldwide, so this is a major health problem around the world and the third cause of cancer death in the world. There are a number of associated causes. In the U.S., with this rise of cancer in the gastroesophageal junction, we're concerned that factors such as obesity and gastroesophageal reflux may be contributing uh, to this rising incidence. But there are other causes uh, around the world. There's uh, an infection called uh, H. pylori, which is associated 
with stomach cancer, as well as cigarette smoking, high salt diets, and, and other dietary factors such as heavy alcohol use and exposure to nitrites and nitrates. About 5 to 10% of gastric cancers are noted in families with about up to 5% where there may be an inherited predisposition. So inherited causes of gastric cancer are far less common. Um, and these include uh, their various syndromes, such as the hereditary diffuse gastric cancer syndrome, which can be seen in young people, secondary to a particular genomic mutation. Uh, there are other uh, inherited syndromes, such as Lynch syndrome, which is also associated with colon cancer and endometrial cancer as uh, prominent links. Uh, there are also colon polyp syndromes that can be associated with gastric cancer. In terms of staging, we do use what's known as the AJCC TNM staging system, T for tumor size, N for lymph nodes, and M for presence of metastatic disease. We do what is called clinical staging, and we have a variety of diagnostic tools, which can include endoscopic ultrasound, uh, which is a tool used by gastroenterologists, and we can get a sense of the depth of invasion of a tumor through the uh, stomach wall, as well as the presence of lymph nodes, as well as using uh, other imaging modalities, such as CT scan, MRI, PET scans, and in some cases, the surgeon may use the laparoscope to get a, a direct look inside the abdomen to uh, enhance staging. Uh, we need to emphasize that a multidisciplinary team is essential in managing and evaluating a gastric cancer patient, and this includes medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, surgical oncologists, radiologists, gastroenterologists, and pathologists. This does take a skilled surgeon for those individuals who can undergo a surgical removal of their tumor. And there are specific guidelines that we look for in terms of the appropriate surgical technique, including an appropriate lymph node dissection. For people who are potential surgical candidates, there's an increasing trend to give therapy before surgery. And this type of approach may include chemotherapy agents such as paciltaxel and carboplatin, which is one common uh, regimen used. And in some cases, it may include chemoradiation. In Japan, it's much more typical for people to have surgery followed by what's called adjuvant chemotherapy or postoperative chemotherapy after successful surgery. Giving chemotherapy after uh, surgery is also uh, utilized in some cases, including uh, some clinical trials. Uh, 
For patients with metastatic or advanced gastric cancer, we have a number of possible regimens we can use, and usually we give two drug combinations. What's very important for patients with metastatic disease is to determine if their tumors have what's known as the human epidermal growth factor receptor 2 gene, referred to as HER2 expression. And uh, this is actually an important advance in the treatment of gastric cancer, as it was in breast cancer, where HER2 expression is also seen. And for patients uh, who do have uh, HER2 expression, uh, we can utilize the drug trastuzumab, a biological drug also known as targeted therapy, which we give in combination with chemotherapy. And this regimen has been shown through clinical trials to extend survivorship. Um, we also have uh, use of other biological therapies. However, we do not have a specific tumor marker to guide selection of patients. But on the basis of clinical trials, for example, for people who may require an alternative therapy, uh, we have the targeted therapy res, uh, ramiserumab, which is uh, also given in combination uh, with chemotherapy. So it, for people who are first receiving uh, chemotherapy, as I mentioned, we need to make sure whether or not they have HER2 expression to guide therapy. Otherwise, we have a number of other drugs we use, such as capecitabine, 5-FU, cisplatin, oxaliplatin, docetaxel, and arenatecan. For those who go on to second-line regimens, I, I mentioned ramiserumab, but there are also other drugs that we use, including Paseltaxel, Docetaxel, and Arena-TCAN, all of which have shown benefit in clinical trials. I'd like to uh, conclude not only uh, stressing the importance of clinical trials, uh, and, and this is always uh, uh, an option that patients should discuss with their physicians to determine if they qualifier for a clinical trial. And a great deal of the work that we're doing now is looking at tumor uh, genetics. And uh, the Cancer Genome Atlas has redefined stomach cancer into four distinct subclasses of patients. And we are very hopeful that with this enhanced biological understanding of stomach tumors, we will be able to define future treatment, which we hope will enhance patient selection for more effective treatments based on tumor targets. Also, through this work, we've identified subgroups of patients who may benefit from immunotherapy. Uh, and there are immunotherapy drugs now routinely used uh, for gastric cancer patients, but this concept of immunotherapy is an important um, type of approach 
which uh, is integrated in a number of current clinical trials. So with that, uh, I should conclude my remarks, and uh, thank you for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful um, introduction to the call as well and very comprehensive. And um, I know the questions for you during the Q&A. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Koo. Dr. Koo is a medical oncologist, assistant attending physician, gastrointestinal service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Koo is going to address new treatment approaches precision medicine, predicting response to treatment, and the role of clinical trials. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Koo. Carolyn, thanks very much. And I think this is the third or fourth year I'm doing this, and I look forward to doing this um, every year. So the, I, I think my talk really um, uh, will, will follow from what um, Dr. Benson talked about. The first thing I would talk about would be newer treatment approaches, which is uh, you know uh, some of the things that he mentioned. So I, I guess the way we think about it is traditionally chemotherapy has been around since really um, after World War II. The idea behind chemotherapy is that these are drugs that attack cells that grow quickly, and cancer cells grow quickly, but you know there are also good cells in the body, including blood cells, hair cells, cells in the intestines, and that relates to a lot to the side effects of chemotherapy. And certainly since the 70s, there's been a better understanding of how how cancer cells survive, how they grow. Uh, and in the last um, you know 15, 20 years, there have, there have been newer treatments um, that go by different names. But uh, one term that we use is targeted therapy, meaning that these treatments are more specific for the cancer cell uh, and typically have side effects that are less than that of chemotherapy. So uh, Dr. Benson mentioned two drugs, actually. One is a drug called trastuzumab or Herceptin. Uh, this is uh, a drug that uh, binds to and blocks HER2, uh, which is present in about 20 to 25 percent of esophageal and stomach cancer cells. Uh, he also briefly mentioned another drug, a drug called remesurumab. This is a blood vessel blocking drug, and the premise behind this is that um, it blocks the blood supplies to the cancer cells and starves them of, of oxygen and nutrients. It's a medication that works on its own, but it's also a medication that works when we add it to chemotherapy. Uh, I think um, clearly the the approach that has had the most excitement over the last five years, not only in stomach cancer, but probably in virtually every cancer, is the idea of immunotherapy. Um, conceptually, this is not anything new. It's actually been around for more than a century. But the idea here is that we are now strengthening the immune system. We are waking up the immune system so that it's able to recognize and attack the cancer cells, much as it would recognize you know, a bacterial infection or the, or the flu. Um, and the first drugs were available about eight years ago. And actually, the difference between when I did this call last June and, and today is that in gastric cancer, there was uh, a milestone improvement of a drug called pembrolizumab. And this is an immunotherapy drug that's approved in multiple cancers, but in September of last year also became approved for stomach cancer. And its approval is in a very specific situation. It's approved as third-line or greater treatment, meaning that for someone um, for whom the cancer has come back or it was spread at the time of diagnosis, the cancer has to grow on two consecutive different chemotherapy regimens uh, before patients would be eligible to receive it. In addition, uh, the cancer cells have to have a specific 
specific protein on them called PDL1. Uh, this is typically present in about 60% of gastric cancer cells. And when this PDL1 is present, we do know that the immunotherapy is more likely to be beneficial. So, so this is a milestone, appro milestone approval in the third line of greater setting requiring that the tumor cells have PDL1. Um, so this really kind of uh, dovetails into the, to the next thing I wanted to talk about, and that's the idea of precision medicine. Uh, and this is a term that's used to refer to uh, our being able to better select um, treatments to 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 give to patients uh, based on their based on an increased likelihood that they will respond to these treatments. And actually, of the three targeted therapies that I talked about, two of them actually do have. There are ways for us to to predict. So specifically trastuzumab, which binds HER2, it's pretty straightforward. If the HER2 is present, then adding trastuzumab to chemotherapy uh, completely makes sense and it greatly improves the chemotherapy. If the HER2 is not present, then it doesn't make sense to add the trastuzumab. Similarly, as I just mentioned, with regards to pembrolizumab, uh, its FDA approval is based on the fact that the cancer cells have to have this PDL1 protein. The PDL1 protein is, is something that, that the um, uh, is, is conceptually something that, that the, the, the pembrolizumab binds. So when it's present, um, patients are more likely to derive benefit uh, from immunotherapy. Uh, beyond that, there are other um, there are other um, um, biomarkers uh, or, or ways that we can kind of guide or select treatment. So another uh, another um, uh, uh, situation that pembrolizumab and, and and other immunotherapy drugs are approved for um, is for a small percentage of of um, all tumors in general that are microsatellite unstable. So Dr. Benson also briefly referred to this, and microsatellite unstable basically means that the cancer cells have lots of mutations, and the idea is that the more mutations are in a cancer cell. Uh, the more abnormal the cell appears to the immune system. And the more abnormal something is and the more different that it is from regular cells, uh, the more easily the immune system can recognize and attack those cells. So, so, so this same immunotherapy drug, pembrolizumab, is actually approved for any cancer that's microsatellite unstable. And typically this is something we see with colon cancer, stomach cancer, pancreatic cancer, but it's seen even in, in, in um, uh, other cancers, including cancers um, of, of, of the uterus. So, so it's it's also standard now for us to test for this microsatellite instability. Uh, there are a couple of ways to test for it, uh, but a kind of comprehensive, you know, one-stop shopping uh, is uh, with a form of testing known as next generation sequencing. And the idea is that we look at uh, many genes within the tumor cells, typically about four to 500 genes, uh, to try to see, A, whether we detect this microsatellite instability, but also to see whether we find specific mutations or problems uh, in, in the cancer cells. And sometimes mutations in cancer cells uh, are kind of the Achilles heel of the, of the cancer cell, so that there may be other experimental treatments that we can, that we can find um, that may be helpful. Um, these, what we call actionable mutations or Achilles heel, are pretty rare in gastric cancer, but um, it's now relatively standard to consider next-generation sequencing 
uh, to look for the Mercury satellite's um, instability status uh, and, and to get more and to get other information. Uh, and th th this next generation sequencing is available through uh, companies. Um, a company that, that's, that's uh, probably the most established uh, is called Foundation Medicine. Uh, at Memorial in Kettering, we also have our own test, uh, which, which probably is about the same as, as Foundation Medicine. Um, the last thing I would talk about is, is the role of clinical trials, and, and I think as Dr. Benson indicated, I mean, really, I think every, you know, all the improvements that we've seen in gastric cancer, and there have been slow, gradual improvements over the last five to ten years, all of these are because patients participate on the studies. So, so from an altruistic perspective, from the perspective of the entire field and, and every patient who comes after, you know, gaining knowledge and our improving treatments, this is absolutely critical. Um, but at the same time, certainly, you know, our goal or my goal when, when I offer clinical studies to patients is that they will derive benefit themselves. So as a specific example, you know, we were one of the centers that participated in the study that led to pembrolizumab being approved in the fall. Uh, and, you know, of, of the patients who went on the study and, and who benefited, I mean, they essentially had access to an innovative treatment uh, several years before it was available anywhere else. Uh, and, and certainly just because we've made some slight progress doesn't mean we're, we're, we're stopping. Um, the next generation of studies, um, uh, many of them are immunotherapy studies, but we're taking on, we're, we're kind of, um, we're kind of um, adding um, other drugs to the pembrolizumab, and we're hoping to add to the, um, you know, very notable but modest benefit of pembrolizumab. So the hope really is that we will continue to make slow, steady progress. Um, and, and over the next several years, we may see other um, combinations of immunotherapy with um, other drugs that, that enhance the immune system. We may see uh, combinations of immunotherapy with chemotherapy. Uh, we may see combinations of immunotherapy with chemotherapy and radiation. Um, so I would uh, conclude my remarks um, um, based on that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ku. Also, quite amazing, um, wonderful, and uh, you know, just very informative. This is information that people really want to have and understand more about. And so, thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. So, everyone, start writing down your questions because I know that there are questions that you're going to want to ask. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Tanyos Bakai Saab. Dr. Bakai Saab is a senior associate consultant, Division of Hematology Oncology. Department of Internal Medicine, co-leader, gastrointestinal cancer program, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, and professor of medicine, Mayo Clinic School of Medicine. And Dr. Bakai Saab is going to be addressing how research contributes to treatment options, controlling symptoms, side effects, and pain, and the importance of communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bakai Saab. Well, thank you, Carolyn. Thank you. And I'm glad to be uh on the call with the all all the esteemed uh, colleagues, and I think uh, uh, you know what I will be addressing primarily relates back to everything that had been discussed. How do we get the answers we're looking for in terms of trying to improve uh, care and outcomes? Uh, ultimately, find uh, ways for remission and a cure, and even in the more advanced settings, um, you know, understanding the important role of research and how it actually leads us. Uh, to treatment options. Uh, in fact, every everything that had been discussed uh, has culminated uh, as part of research trials. 
and and research comes in in different uh, flavors. In fact, uh, it's a continuum. Uh, a lot of the research starts typically in the lab, asking questions uh, that uh, are clinically relevant, and bringing some ideas forth. Uh, say immune therapy agents, chemotherapeutic agents, targeted agents, um, <clears throat> and 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 the the the, the drug development process starts in early phase trials, phase one, where we ask questions that are particular to understanding uh, what is the safest dose to give to patients as we move forward and also look for, for signals. And then that then moves to a phase, the phase two setting where we're trying to understand a little bit more about the toxicities in a more expanded phase and then uh, uh, also start seeing stronger and stronger signals before we move to the large and determinant phase three trials, which help us essentially establish a new standard of care versus uh, 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 an older standard of care. Uh, this also has changed a little bit over the last uh, uh, few years, where some agents have been making it to the clinic. Primarily, we're talking about immune therapy agents based on their promise and phase two trials, um, specifically in subsets of patients. So we're seeing uh, changes and dynamic changes in how uh, these uh, research questions are being addressed in smaller studies and creating new standards for our patients. Um, so research is very important. Research really contributes to understanding treatment options. And, you know, although we, we always wish that every every research study end up being positive and improving the outcome, many of these studies may end up being negative. So the question is, you know, do we lose out when a study is negative? Well, you know, in, in, in the way we learn about treatment options, we learn both from the positive and the negative. There's a lot to learn from the negative. Uh, one, we learn what not, what not to do next time we build our next research study. But two, we also learn a lot about the biology of the cancer and continue to improve on, 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 on studies. So research is key. Research is important. Research is what leads uh, to essentially progress in this in this disease and in cancer overall, uh, immune therapy has uh, has been as as Dr. Ku mentioned uh, has been at the forefront of how we're moving the field forward. Uh, you may have he heard about CAR T cells and CAR T cell approaches uh, that have been successful in uh, uh, leukemias, and they're making their ways into solid tumors and gastric cancer is an area of specific interest. Uh, there are certain studies that are being built. Uh, this is not a standard yet. This will be part of uh, future uh, research endeavors. Um, so part of how to care of our patients, in addition to uh, treatment, um, one of the key elements that leads to successful treatment options is controlling symptoms, making sure that patients uh, are able to tolerate the treatments well, and uh, controlling pain if there is pain. So symptoms with gastric cancer can can, can be uh, varied. Um, because of the location of the stomach uh, as the portal of entry uh, or as the second uh, portal of entry into the digestive tract from the esophagus to the stomach, obstruction uh, can be problematic, and obstruction can lead to essentially, depending on, on the site of the tumor, whether it's uh, closer to the esophagus or or more distal, i.e., it be closer to the small bowels, it can essentially lead to uh, uh, to issues 
with uh, able to get food down uh to uh, uh to 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 digest uh, it can also increase the risk of nausea uh it can increase the risk of vomiting and it also can lead to malnutrition thankfully we have a number of options for patients with obstruction uh can can be varied from a stent uh to placement of uh, a feeding and a decompression tube uh, to allow for uh, essentially uh, adequate uh, nutritional intake as well as symptom relief. The other uh, problem we sometimes face uh, uh, includes bleeding. Um, again, just because of the location of the tumor in the stomach, sometimes it hits on blood vessels and can lead to bleeding. Again, the good news is we have ways to control that. Upper endoscopy, meaning a scope that goes down the throat to the esophagus to the stomach and can find the, the source of bleeding and cauterize it, uh, close it down. In rare instances, bleeding is severe enough that we need to do surgery and surgery to remove uh, <clears throat> essentially the stomach that's, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's bleeding and resolve the issue. Uh, patients with stomach cancer can have issues with uh, nutrition uh, and uh, a nutritionist is usually part of our uh, care team uh, to help uh, with maximizing nutrition uh, and optimizing uh, the capacity for the patients to continue building their strength and their muscles as they go through treatment and treatment options. In terms of pain, uh, which is also another symptom that can arise, we work very closely with our uh, uh, palliative care uh, the doctors, uh, all large institutions have palliative care teams embedded into the teams. They help not just with pain, they help with all the other symptoms, the nausea, anxiety, and other issues that may arise, but also help us with managing some of the side effects from the chemotherapy. Now, a lot of the symptoms are related to the cancer itself, but many symptoms can, can be related to side effects from uh, the treatment uh, 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 options uh, that our patients go through, uh, chemotherapy can induce a different set of of, uh, of toxicities, uh, counts, nausea, diarrhea. On the other hand, target therapies can cause diarrhea, fatigue, uh, perhaps less problematic in terms of the blood counts. And then immune therapies have their own set of toxicities. Uh, they, they, there's some some rare severe diarrhea, but there are also some other toxicities. Uh, such as uh, thyroid issues, uh, liver issues that, you know, we keep an eye on. So the, 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 the landscape is becoming quite complex and very important, uh, which brings me to the third point, very important to continue that line of communication uh, between uh, our patients, their families, and our healthcare team. And why? Because it's important. It's important. This helps us maintain uh, the, the quality of life of our patients, make, make sure that we always re-examine goals, what exactly we're doing, what exactly are our goals, uh, how can we make sure that we keep a good balance between the treatment goals, but also, uh, most importantly, uh, to make sure that we keep the quality of life of our patients optimal. Uh, so quantity is very important. Quality is also very important, and we'd like to have both going hand in hand. In hand. I consider, whenever I talk to my patients, I always consider my patient and their family as my partners, in terms of optimizing care, uh, making sure that we're all on the same page, continue that very close communication because early prevention of symptoms is best, 
the sooner I can get to controlling the nausea, the diarrhea, uh, the fatigue, the nutritional problems, the better we will be, the more likely we're going to be able to continue being aggressive with our treatment, and the more likely we're going to preserve the, the, the very important quality of life uh, that our patients and their families strive for. Uh, so that would end my uh, discussion. Oh, that was excellent, Dr. Pekaisab. That was really um, excellent and very informative for everybody. And um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, but really a very excellent presentation on so many different topics that I think are so relevant to our population today on the call. So thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is a dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden is going to be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. Um, and I'm going to turn this program now over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of gastric cancer. Nutrition and hydration are key to tolerance um, during treatment. Um, they help provide the energy to do the things that we enjoy, um, and it also helps maintain our endurance to also do those things. Um, a plant-based diet is the most ideal for prevention during treatment and during survivorship. Um, a plant-based diet translates into having about two-thirds of your plate from a plant-based source, such as a whole grain, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds. Um, the benefits from plant-based foods include they contain antioxidants and phytochemicals along with fiber. Fresh or frozen are the best forms of plant-based foods. Um, incorporating a variety of colors is key so that you're inoculating yourself with as many phytonutrients as you can. The other third of your plate should be of lean protein. Um, lean proteins are items such as wild-caught fish, um, including cold water fish, um, such as halibut, salmon, tuna, sardines, um, also bringing in poultry, um, and beans um, as a protein source more often, at least a couple of times a week having um, an, an entire plant-based um, meal is ideal. Protein is important. It's the building block for healing. And if you're preparing for surgery or recovering from surgery, a modified diet might be suggested to improve tolerance. Um, a modified diet might include eating several, several small meals a day, increasing your protein, and avoiding, and avoiding foods that result in undesirable side effects. Um, it might be possible that a feeding tube is introduced into your plan of care based on your unique needs. There may be a need for you to take a supplement um, during this time. Talk with your healthcare team. Um, prior to doing this if you aren't directed by them to ensure that there's no interactions that could potentially take place with your treatment and the supplement. It may seem harmless, but there can be interactions that you aren't aware of or that they're aware of with the medications um, that could really impact um, how you the results of, of taking that. But dehydration um, is an important factor that you have to remember with um, patients going through treatment, especially those with gastric cancer, primarily because sometimes we feel full very quickly um, with gastric cancer or we may have some digestive issues um, or blockages that might be influencing our tolerance to intake. But dehydration can increase nausea, fatigue, and make you feel dizzy. Fluids or anything that is liquid at room temperature, such as water, milk, sports drinks, 
a general guideline is that most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. If you are experiencing side effects, keep a daily record of what you're eating and, and document the side effects that you're experiencing. It'll make your healthcare team um, more equipped to help directing you on how to make changes. A dietitian can provide you with the calorie and protein needs along with fluid needs that you need for each day. So please reach out to your dietitian if um, you haven't already. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll now pass the line back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Braden. That was really wonderful. Thank you. And I know we have questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Um, and I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, and then after I do that, we're going to take questions, so please start to think about your questions. So Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide services to people all over the country. We provide them um, to people um, in all of the United States. Um, and um, we offer uh, practical and financial assistance. Um, we also um, have a staff of oncology social workers who provide uh, counseling services and uh, who actually um, offer the chance to talk with someone about your concerns and questions. Um, we also um, offer support groups, and um, our support groups are very popular. We have over 120 online support groups and many, many telephone support groups. I think the online support groups are particularly popular with people in, uh, in internationally in terms of their, um, you know, they're, they're just being able to participate in those programs um, all over the world um, because they happen in, um, they don't happen in real time. They um, happen when you can post any time of the day or night, and our oncology social workers will be checking your, um, your posts. Throughout the, you know, so that will, be, um, that will happen throughout, you know, throughout the um, – so you will be, it will be checked during the day, but nevertheless, you can post any time. Um, and um, so we have a, also we offer these education workshops as well as we offer a number of publications as well. Um, and of course, have a very active website. Um, for those of you internationally, you can visit our website and you can post a question and you can also sign up for an online support group as can people in the United States as well. And you also can call us. People who have access to our 800 number can call us that way as well. And of course, um, visit our website. So with that being said, there's a lot of free services here at Cancer Care, and we definitely recommend that you take advantage of them. They can help you in your coping with gastric cancer, with any type of cancer that you're coping with, and it's good for both people living with cancer as well as their caregivers. So with that being said, we now have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask um, uh, Crystal to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions, and I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, and um, we will... Um, let our questions begin. And if we don't get to your question, I will, at the end of the program, give you directions in terms of how to get your questions answered. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Mr. Emil S. Your line is open. If one does a colonoscopy and endoscopy and polyps are found, removed, and biopsied as benign, should one be concerned that future uh, colonoscopies and endoscopies could become or could show malignant tumors or polyps? Well, thank you for that question, Emil. Um, Dr. Um, Benson, could you address that question? Yes. So um, some polyps, uh, but certainly not all, 
can be uh, pre-malignant. And the point of screening, such as screening colonoscopies, is to remove a polyp before it can uh, transform to a cancer. Uh, in terms of the interval of colonoscopies, it, it is dependent, for example, if someone uh, has an inherited risk of uh, a cancer, whether it's stomach cancer or colon cancer. But for the bulk of the population, because polyps can be uh, very slow in growth and the transformation to a, a cancer, it can be a more prolonged uh, process. There are defined intervals of time when a person should be screened, and if polyps are noted, the gastroenterologist will determine when the next uh, colonoscopy should be performed with the idea of an assessment so that if a new polyp is evident, it doesn't have uh, a chance to develop into a, a cancer. So uh, by doing these procedures, we certainly hope to remove uh, a polyp before it has any chance to cause trouble. And for people who've had colonoscopy or upper endoscopy and polyps have been discovered, it'll be critically important to discuss when the next follow-up scope procedure should be performed. And that can vary with the individual. Awesome. Thank you. And Emil, please take that information to your treating healthcare team. And a uh, great question. Um, and um, we have one of, a question in front of our online participants. Um, so I'm going to give this question um, to actually Dr. Um, Bakai Saab. Um, is the risk for gastric cancer mostly affected by lifestyle or are there genetic factors that need to be considered? Are there screenings that I should suggest to my family members? If yes, when should screenings begin? Yeah, so, uh, you know, that's a pretty complex uh, uh, question. I think that the majority of the gastric uh, cancer diagnosis in the United States, uh, specifically those that affect the junction between the stomach and the uh, esophagus, so the G junction, which is the primary driver today of gastric cancer in the U.S., uh, are likely to be affected to lifestyle, the number of uh, of uh, certainly elements that uh, that could lead to that uh, obesity, smoking, as Dr. Benson referred to, uh, uh, sedentary lifestyle. Um, uh, so all all these things coming together, uh, a long-standing history of uh, acid reflux, uh, the the presence of what we call Barrett's esophagus. Uh, in patients who have long-standing history of, of acid reflux. So a number of things can, can certainly lead uh, to, uh, to, uh, to gastric, uh, gastroesophageal cancer. There is certainly uh, uh, some genetic predisposition for gastric cancer. These are incredibly rare, and they typically run uh, in families. There are certain mutations to the H1, which can certainly uh, be a driver uh, for gastric cancer, again, this is incredibly rare. We don't routinely screen for it uh, unless there are uh, patients uh, or uh, or family members 
typically in their 30s, early 40s, that may have been affected by uh, gastric cancer, aggressive gastric cancers. Now, they, these can happen at any age, but typically they're, they're in younger patients. Uh, in terms of screening, uh, um, you know, the, because this is not a common cancer, there are no justifications, at least in the U.S., uh, to do wide uh, screening for this type of cancer. Now, I would say that if there are any symptoms that are concerning, you certainly want to talk to your physician and perhaps consider an upper endoscopy. If you have significant acid reflux that hasn't been controlled, again, talk to your physician, gastroenterologist. That you may uh, need a, 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 an upper endoscopy, which may document Barrett's esophagus, and then may need to have a close look, and that's closer to the GE junction. And, to, and those patients who may have a genetic predisposition, documented genetic predisposition, uh, then again, they have to talk to uh, both their physician, surgeon. Um, for some of these patients, actually, uh, uh, there, there needs to be close surveillance, and in some instances, even uh, consider removal of the stomach. But these are, again, incredibly rare, and uh, these uh, would be through discussion with the physician. So there is no really wide... Uh, screening recommended for gastric cancer, except on a case-by-case basis. Thank you. Um, and um, a question, another question from one of our online participants for Dr. Koo. Um, um, what can we do to help my husband who is losing weight rapidly? Um, we do frequent small meals, but he doesn't have the appetite to eat much of a portion, which is already small. It's yeah, so I, I think... Um, you know, so I think this is something you know that that we touched on. Um, I think one of the most difficult situations is is nutrition when it comes to any cancer, but I think especially in a cancer when it involves the esophagus or the stomach. Um, and you know, I think it, certainly there is a you know strong medical component to this, and it's really important to try to maintain nutrition um, because I think if someone is malnourished, you know, they lose weight, uh, their energy drops, and their ability to tolerate chemotherapy drops as well. But I think more than that, I mean, from an emotional perspective, seeing a family member you know not eat is is very very distressing. So I think you know there can be numerous reasons as to why you know someone is is not eating. Certainly with chemotherapy, we see taste changes. Um, if that's the case, um, it's a little bit of a process of trial and error. But many patients have told me that um, that things that are a little bit sweet um, taste the best. Uh, things that are salty can sometimes be bitter, uh, and things that are spicy can actually be painful. But but there's definitely a bit of trial and error in that regard. Um, there can certainly be also issues with nausea and issues with, with appetite. Um, you know, the nausea may be related to the cancer itself or may be related to uh, the chemotherapy treatments that someone is receiving. So certainly from that perspective, we, you know, look at the doses of the chemotherapy. We make sure that, um, that patients are on, you know, the most appropriate and the strongest anti-nausea medications. And, and similarly, if it's an appetite issue, um, um, there are appetite stimulants that, that one can consider. And increasingly in many states, you know, medical marijuana is something that's available. That can have benefits in terms of, um, in terms of helping with appetite. It sometimes can also have some anti-nausea properties. So, you know, typically, uh, I would say for us, we, we work with, um, we have a supportive care team, um, we have nutritionists, we have gastroenterologists, and frequently it takes, you know, it takes a village or it takes everyone working together um, to, try to, to try to help with that. 
um, I, I think Ms. You know, Bearden also touched on the fact that sometimes, you know, we do also have to end up considering putting in feeding tubes. I would say that's relatively uncommon as much as possible. You know, clearly, you know, it's it's something that everyone would rather um, avoid, and, and and we work on you know any number of um, supportive medications, any number of you know, um, nutritional supplements, clearly the idea of small frequent meals, clearly the idea of high calorie foods uh, are things that can be helpful. Excellent. Thank you. And Ms. Bearden, do you want to add anything as well? Well, I think you covered it um, very well. But the one thing is um, the frequency may need to look different from one person to another. And like, um, you know, increasing the caloric value of what is being eaten is another alternative. You know, oftentimes just depending on what was removed during the gastric procedure, if um, if the sphincter was removed at the base of the stomach, um, if, you know, um, the size of the stomach, depending on a lot of different components, um, you know, that will have an impact on it. But some foods can actually cause symptoms such as a dumping syndrome. So being mindful of that um, and just working with your healthcare team and, and keeping a diary of what the patient's eating um, is really important as well because being able to fortify some of those meals um, could become an option with protein powders or can help enhance the caloric and nutritional value of food. Thank you. And actually a related question, but I'm going to give this one to Dr. Bakai Saab. Um, so um person feels queasy. My doctor prescribed anti-nausea medicines, but they don't seem to be helping. Do you have any recommendations? Just, of course, um, answer well, in a general way, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, 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 the queasiness, uh, which I'm, I'm, if I understand well, it's probably nausea, uh, a nauseous feeling, which can be related certainly to the to the to the cancer itself, but also to the chemotherapy. Uh, uh, oftentimes, one agent may uh, not uh, help as much, and there may be need to switch to another agent. Uh, sometimes it's a combination of uh, of agents. Uh, it also could be uh, agents plus nutritional, uh, you know, nutrition. Uh, 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 Consultation changes, you know, you may not be eating the right foods with uh, with the type of cancer they have. So there are a number of elements that could affect that. This goes back to the most important component here is, you know, this is, again, a partnership between uh, the physician, the provider, and, and the patient, and a good level of communication back and forth with the team uh, would help optimize the quality of life of the patient. In this case, you know, may help resolve that feeling of queasiness and again, with change of therapy, added therapy, nutritional uh, changes, etc. Thank you so much. And again, um, Ms. Reardon, do you want to add anything to that? Well, a lot of times um, that underlying queasiness could could also be related to hydration. Um, a lot of times patients, especially after or during the treatment for um, gastric cancer, you know, their, their space looks different. Um, that can be based on the tumor. It can be based on the if there's an obstruction, all sorts of different things. And so hydration is very important. Um, and then, of course, consuming throughout the day, small amounts throughout the day. Um, it's definitely going to take time after surgery especially. 
um, because, you know, anytime you have surgery, um, it's going to cause inflammation. And there's a lot of swelling that can happen with inflammation and that can put pressure um, on the abdomen and just make you feel more full. So, you know, talking with your healthcare team, just like we've been saying, explain your symptoms, again, writing down what you're eating, how much you're drinking, um, and making sure that those basic needs of, of hydration are met, I think are really important. Sometimes that can be overlooked very easily when we're trying to get food in, we forget about fluids. And so that can have an impact on things. Awesome. Thank you. And we have a question. I'm going to um, ask all of our speakers to address this one, but it's actually I'm going to start with Dr. Benson. But the question is um, to, to talk about how gastric cancer treatments have changed over the past five years. So, um, Dr. Benson, if you could go first. And um, I know you've, we've kind of alluded to it during the call, but I guess um, here we have this question. So, <laughs> Well, Although we, we clearly want to do better and better in developing therapies, I, I would say that over time there are a, a number of regimens that can help people and which allows us to extend therapy over time. Um, I think the uh, understanding of tumors that express HER2 for example, what we talked about and the use of trastuzumab has been a very important advance, um, as well as getting a much better understanding of the biology of the disease. And, and just moving forward with these four subclassifications of gastric tumors uh, helps us um, in terms of uh, grasping the biology of the disease and what we hope will lead to better treatments that are, are much more precise for a, a given individual. Uh, and as also mentioned, the development of immunotherapeutic strategies, and this is definitely a work in progress, and there are a number of trials looking at various combinations with immunotherapy where we hope we will uh, advance treatment opportunities. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Koo? Uh, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question, please? Oh, so the question is, how really have, um, cancer, have gastric cancer treatments changed over the past five years? Yeah, I, I think the I, I think going back even ten years, I mean, I, I think um, as Dr. Benson indicated, you know, the the, the trastuzumab or Herceptin story really at the time was a mile, was a milestone because it was the first again what we call targeted therapies. It was the first treatment other than um, regular chemotherapy that that had a benefit. Uh, and part of the excitement was that the benefit was was could be relatively significant, and Herceptin or trastuzumab itself is a drug that has very little side effects. Um, the next improvement would have been, you know, four years ago when remesirumab, this blood vessel blocking drug, helped to improve things. Um, it also has very few side effects, and when we add it to chemotherapy, it's clearly become, you know, around the world uh, what we could, what we would consider, you know, a, a, a standard treatment that's a little bit better than than what happened before. And, and again, as I mentioned, you know, last September, um, uh, immunotherapy, you know, became became approved. So, so I think we're we're beginning to see some some you know momentum in this in this very difficult to treat disease. 
Um, and, and, you know, as Dr. Benson mentioned, I think the next generation of studies is actually beginning to put some of these things together. So we're beginning actually, you know, to add um, immunotherapy to Herceptin. We're beginning to add immunotherapy to Remisirumab. Uh, certainly you know, the, the, the wider field uh, of cancer medicine in general is looking at the next generation of immunotherapy drugs. Um, but we're also looking at adding immunotherapy to a combination of chemotherapy or a combination of chemotherapy and radiation you know, for patients who have earlier stage tumors that have that haven't spread. Um, and, and one thing that uh, Dr. Benson alluded to that, that's also been very helpful is that for the first time, we have kind of a theoretical framework to think about stomach cancer. Um, you know, up till this point, um, the diagnosis of cancer was made by looking at uh, the cells un under a microscope, uh, you know, with a you know, light microscope that you would find in a, in a high school biology class. Uh, for the first time now, we we begin, you know, we're beginning to understand kind of the molecular underpinnings of stomach cancer. In other words, at kind of the genetic level, um, what's driving these cells, or or or, or you know, or how we can better figure out uh, what kind of you know subclasses or subtypes there are. So, I mean, that hasn't immediately translated into clear-cut clinical benefit, but at least it's allowed us to kind of think about things at a at a more basic level. And you know, the more basic um, and and, and the more nitty-gritty we can get with this cancer, I think, you know, the more dividends that we'll pay eventually. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Dr. Fakai um, Fab, uh, your, your thoughts about this as well? Yeah, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we've, uh, and, and I don't want to repeat what my colleague said because I agree fully, but I think overall, uh, you know, it's been it's been an exciting time in terms of moving the cancer care field forward and specifically in gastric cancer over the last five years and then continuing forth. Some of the things that, uh, you know, uh, have helped a lot. We always focus a lot on the excitement and on immune therapy and on target therapies and others. I think one of the biggest elements that has actually allowed us to care for our patients and make sure that we're able to deliver the treatment uh, is, you know, how well or how better we are doing in terms of our supportive and palliative care, you know, I think that's key because ultimately we can have the best agent that has the best promise, but we haven't taken care of our patients to the point where they can receive the agent or where we were able to intensify the chemotherapy. So I think some of the advances are certainly those that have broken down the disease into many subgroups, have brought into uh, uh, the clinic targeted agents, specific agents that, you know, acknowledge certain genetic uh, abnormalities in the cancer and target them, certainly refining chemotherapy. But I think a very important component is a better understanding of how to care for our patients, how to optimize uh, their uh, performance status, how to optimize their nutrition, how to care for their pain, and a lot of the other quality of life elements that would allow us essentially to continue aggressively treating the cancer. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. And, um, and Ms. Bearden. Well, um, I think just everything with nutrition, I mean, there's so many new um, avenues to help support patients, new modulars, new products um, that are more appropriate for patients um, who are challenged postoperatively or who come in and are we're preparing them for surgery and bringing in um, some of the products that we've used, um, Impact, 
is a product that we've used that's helped prepare patients um, for surgery and, and seen some good results with that. So um, I think there's a lot that's happening in the nutrition field. Um, we're also more focused on the the physical exam, the nutrition-focused physical exam, which brings to light um, a little bit more um, with addressing uh, muscle wasting, fat um, fat loss, um, and, and really looking at that energy expenditure and how their body's um, responding to um, what challenges they're experiencing. So I, I see advances for sure. Excellent. And um, well, that was our last question. I just want to actually thank our speakers, and I want to thank um, all of our speakers. Have been just phenomenal. And I also want to thank just wonderful and the best. And I also want to thank our participants for both asking both wonderful questions, both on the phone and online. And in terms of really how things have changed, they've really changed quite a bit in terms of just what you can hear all of our speakers say. There's been so many, um, so much so much that has been accomplished and more to be done and that you definitely would want to expect more than of your healthcare team. So those of you I know still have questions, um, I do want to um, address how you can get your questions answered. But I do want to ma make a call out to all of you that you can ask questions. It's very important to ask questions of your healthcare team because there's so much more out there for you. Um, so for any medical questions that you still have, of course your healthcare team is a wonderful resource. Um, but I know you like to go other places as well. So the National Cancer Institute, they have a toll-free number, 1-800-422-6237. Um, and I'll be, we'll be sending all that information to you as soon as you get your evaluation form. So you'll get all the information that I, I give at this point or that we've given throughout the call. Um, and they also have a wonderful website, www.cancer.gov. And they have a live chat feature, which is really nice for people both in the U.S. and internationally where you can post your question and the information specialist will then address your question, give you all sorts of resources um, and links to information your question. That may be very helpful to all of you. For those of you who might like to take advantage of cancer care services, you may contact Cancer Care by phone at 1-800-813-4673, or you may go to our website at www.cancercare.org, um, and you can uh, let the staff there know. Either way, the oncology social workers will be addressing your questions and, and um, getting help for you. And um, if you wish to sign up for future programs as well, you can go to our website and get that get the same way you can sign up for programs. I do want to mention to all of you that we have two programs coming up that might be of interest to you. One is on current perspectives on cancer survivorship, which is occurring on June 19th. And the other one is genomics and genetics, what is the difference, because we talked about both during the program today, and that's on Monday, June 25th. Both of them are from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation. And most importantly, as you conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with gastric cancer or cancer or just feeling that you're alone in dealing with, with your issues. Please know that you're part of this support community of Cancer Care and many other organizations that we partner with and that we are all here to help you. Again, I want to wish you all a very fine day and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.